everyone, I'm Margot Faraci. This is the second in my series of podcasts, Heart and Hustle, How to Stay Profitable in a Pandemic. I'm interviewing business owners and leadership experts about their direct experiences and perspectives during COVID-19. And I really want to make sure that everyone listening takes something from it, something that they can apply in their own community and in their own business. Now, today I'm talking with Simon Cora. Simon runs Growth Mantra, and that's a team of consultants who specialise in accelerating commercial outcomes with fast-to-market solutions. They do combine creative marketing and management consulting to innovate and implement in-market at speed, which is really important right now. Growth Mantra asks, what are the key trends driving change in the market? How do we evolve our business model? And what are the best opportunities to drive sustainable growth? They're all really important questions right now. They've got an outstanding reputation in the market and they're also an app client, which is really fantastic. So Simon, welcome. Thank you. Simon, first up, can you tell us a little bit about how and why you started Growth Mantra? Well, at the time, it's 2007. Little did I know the GFC was about to hit, but we saw an opportunity in the market to find growth for clients in a way that was much more creative than it was currently done. Because at the time you had advertising agencies that did comms and you'd had management consultants that did very dry, very high level board paperwork. And we wanted to come in and combine those two skills so we could find things that would actually work for a client in the market that they take to market really quickly and that everybody would buy. And it's gone really well. Yeah, it's gone really well. We've worked with some amazing blue chip clients over the years and the journey has been terrific. So really, pretty much you were born into a crisis. If you started in 2007, by the time you were just toddling around at the age of one, everything had turned out. Yeah, so we had this great proposition around growth mantra and it was really the save me mantra. <laughs> People wanted the revenue. If they could hang on to the revenue post-GFC, they were doing really well. Which leads me to the really big theme that we've talked about and that we'd love to tell everyone about today, which is your theme around disruption always being good for innovation. I want to come back to that and really hone in on that. First, though, I'd love to understand what you're seeing in terms of your customers' behaviour in both the emotional response and the need for advice during the pandemic. Of course, the first thing happened to clients is they go, holy moly, how do we deal with this? What do we do? You know, we've all done the cost stuff. In we jump, right? What cost don't we need? How many people do we need to lose? What does our revenue look like? How long is this going to last? All these kind of big questions we've been through. We've done all that. So then now that we're kind of moving into the next phase, which is well, what happens next? How long is this going to actually last? What do we do when it comes and ends? And, and anyway, what will have changed permanently? And there's quite a lot of things that, of course, I reckon will have changed permanently. Well, certainly for the next three to five years before we all become humans again and get greedy and off we go. <laughs> but for the next three or four, five years, there's going to be stuff that, as a direct result of this, will have changed. And so the clients are going, well, what are those things? And mm-hmm. how do we how do we find the silver lining in this, which is opportunities for us to be able to grow into an environment which we know is different to only two months ago? Do you think our business owners should be thinking about growth right now? You're right. Everyone's done the panic, reduce, send everyone home. How are we going to get through it? And now we're in phase two, which is adjusting to the new normal, whatever that is. And do you think it, people should be thinking about growing or is it just about keeping the doors open today? Well, I, I, I think... For those that have survived, survival is no longer the question. Right. Because, you know, you're a virgin or you're, you're in trouble. Mm. You know you're going to hit that wall and you're going to go through that. So I think we're at the moment where enough pain has occurred that people know they're going to survive. So the question now is, okay. how do we get back to growth? 
Because growth, you know, for any organisation owned by shareholders, growth is the game. So you go, well, how do we do that? What does that look like? Do you think that's the same for organisations not owned by shareholders? For- I think it changes, yeah. I think, I think if you're in an environment which is mutuals being a good example, mutuals have to have a certain amount of growth. So you can't take your pedal off the wheel and go, well, we don't mind not growing because not growing is going backwards. But the demands of organisations owned by customers is different to organisations owned by shareholders. Mm. The shareholders remote from the organisation say, come on, I'm expecting a return here. Yeah. Give me a dividend. Yeah. That's different when you're owned by your own customers. And you do have this theme around disruption being really great for innovation and therefore yeah. good for growth, I imagine. The way I think about it always is that necessity is the mother of invention and business owners are just so good at scratching out the opportunity. Can you tell us some of your insights on that thing? If you look back in history, and even if you only go back to relatively recent history around the early 90s recession, which is the last one we had, the GFC, this pandemic, all of them will prove that disruption is a key for innovation. So a couple of good examples, of course, in the early 90s, the global recession was pretty painful. It was the recession we had to have, yeah. according to Keating. And uh, Australia did okay out of it, but other markets did really badly. And what happened was, by 94, obviously a bloke called Jeff Betsos thought, well, there's a good opportunity. He started in his garage. He started Amazon. And, and he fundamentally changed two things then that even today are the way that business is conducted. And he, in those days, we had no idea how significant it was going to be. The first of those was online only. Nobody had launched an online only no. business. We actually had no idea what it was. I was still struggling whether I needed to buy an app or Mac for <laughs> MNC when I started in 95. I had no idea. I needed a computer. So that was the first thing. Online only was a kind of really massive revolution. I mean, yeah. Of course, that's de rigueur these days. And the second thing which he did, which we'd never seen before, was collecting and using data to personalize stuff. So he could predict and be proactive about selling stuff, knowing that we are likely to buy it. That whole idea about you bought this, so you'll like that, or somebody like you bought this and they like that. That was revolutionary. So I think the Amazon thing was a good example, end of the first recession. And the second one is the massive revolution in the share economy came out as a result of the end of the GFC. So in the GFC, what happened was, a bit like now, lots of people lost their jobs. Mm. When you lose your jobs, you can't afford to pay the mortgage. So you go, well, how do I, in this environment, how do I afford to pay the mortgage? And I've got a redundant car. Uber and Airbnb were launched on the back of the ability for people to, through technology, rent out assets and get a return on it because they had no other way of earning money. Yeah. And so it was a revolution in the share economy. Of course, there's been hundreds of share economy businesses now, but those guys started it. And they did it because they spotted a problem. They found a technological solution to it. And they knew there was margin available. Mm. So those three things, when you get the coexistence of those three things, which is margin availability, a consumer problem and a technology solution, you have disruption. There you go, the secret to life, those three things. That's it. And in terms of themes that you're seeing, just even in the way we live and what might come of this, you know, I know you've got some views on that. I've been thinking a lot about, like myself as a, a legal graduate, right, if I was doing that now, the young graduates coming through, they're the first to go, right, so they've been cut. They've got nothing behind them. They don't have jobs. They've been working for one or two years. I have this great hope that this will be a wellspring of innovation. Like that cohort of people will look back in 20 years' time and say, thank God for the pandemic. I had nothing to lose. It forced me to go and take some risks and create some innovative solutions that now have helped the world. But you've you've been thinking about some themes around how we're living and, and how we're thinking about things as a society that you think might actually follow through. Yeah. Look, I think 
you know, even before COVID-19, this has been a really fascinating period since the GFC because the invention of things like AI and robotics is changing the way things are done. Everything. So think about in a world of education, it used to be rote learning. And if you had the knowledge and you could spout the knowledge, you pass the exam and the better you could, the better a degree you got. That was the way it worked. And then you went to a law firm and you did due diligence and you did discovery and all of those things, as you'll know. But that's pre-AI. Mm. In a post-AI world, the world has changed. That was even pre-COVID that was happening. And, and so you go back to your example, you go, well, you graduate with, as a lawyer. What do you do? Because the, the jobs that you used to do, they're technology and they're done in a second, not a year. Yeah. And so we are a bit like when the horse and cart was overtaken by the car. Mm. We're in this transition period, which will last for another, at least another 10 years, mm. where we're working out, like Hidden Figures, that movie. Mm. How do we deal with the IBM computer arriving at NASA when that used to be our job? Yeah. Well, they transform themselves into being the maintenance and the trainers of the computers, yeah. of course. Well, we are working that through. But in terms of COVID, I think there's a few things in terms of the way we live and the way we work, which are completely evident now. So one of the things that happens when you see these big disruptions, and it happened, you know, the Great Depression and the wars and the GFCs and all the major recessions and all of the major pandemics around the world, you get this, you know, people talk about herd immunity. Yeah. Well, my view is that you also get herd psychological shifts. So you get shifts in society mm. which are psychologically based, yeah. which change the way we behave. Now, some of those are permanent. Some are not so permanent. Yeah. Some are just until we learn, as I said a minute ago, to be greedy again. But what <laughs> you find is that so some things that are really current and will be really significant for the next few years are things like self-sufficiency. So the idea of from me as an individual growing stuff at home to the community gardens, which are popping up all over the suburbs, through the country saying we cannot just rely on China as a major. All of those things are going to encourage self-sufficiency and we're going to buy into that. Yeah. The second thing is it strikes me as this is a time where the pause button has made us think about what we really value. We had got caught up in this ever-increasing speed of buying and buying and buying and buying and zooming and running around. The pause button has been pressed. And what's happened is that I think as a general community, certainly here in Australia and probably other Western nations, we've gone, wow, let's stick to the things. Let's go back to the simple things that we think are important. I mean, technology is still now a massive part of us, but it means that we're going to review things that instead of going to all those things we never really wanted to go to, we're not going to bother. Yeah, I think there's going to be a whole... What matters is our families matter mm -hmm. and actually doing Zoom calls is quite a nice thing. We mm -hmm. should keep that up. My family's obviously overseas. Doing things like meeting up with the people we really want to meet with. Yeah. When you can only have five, you're more choosy. When you can only have 10 at a funeral or five at a wedding, you're yeah. quite choosy. That means that instead of having thousands of friends that we kind of associate, mm -hmm. we, we're going back to having a few friends that are really important to us yeah. for whom that connection is deep and meaningful. Yeah. I think those are a couple of important things. The other one I think which is really powerful is we've kind of got used to everything coming from everywhere. Well, I think one of the big things that this is bringing us back to is local. Mm -hmm. Neighbourhoods and communities have been reconnected here because we've had to. We've been locked in. I mean, yeah. a great example in the UK is on Thursdays when they all clap for the health workers mm -hmm. at midday yeah. or three o'clock, whatever it is. And my brother said to me, it's amazing, he'd never met his neighbours, but now he knows them yeah. all up and down the street. <laughs> and there you go, right? So I think there's something going on. And then local is also about provenance and about 
knowing where food came from. Yeah. Yeah. Things about provenance are becoming important. It's not a new trend. We've heard of it before, but it's been accelerated by COVID. Well, it's been laid bare, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, re- the real problems. That. Yeah, that's right. In terms of how we work, Simon, yeah. you know, I've been working flexibly for nearly 14 years since I had my son yeah. and fought some battles, frankly, on that front because back then and even now in some environments there's questions of, well, how do we know you're actually working? Yeah. My view on that has always been as a leader, if I have to be standing and watching my people work, then they shouldn't be working for me. I've got the wrong people yeah. or I'm doing it wrong or something. Yeah. But to me now this widespread acceptance that we actually can be effective from home. I think there's two things in that. Number one, it's actually made some of us realise how much we enjoy each other in the office and how important that is. But also number two, there's a shift in trust too. You actually have to trust people to work from home, which is really nice. But you've got some thoughts on yeah. how work might change. Yeah, well, I think it takes 21 days to change a habit. And I, honestly, it was like two. Yeah. Wasn't it? We went from we're all at work, we're all at work. No, nobody's here. Yeah, <laughs> we're all we're all working remotely. I've never worked with so many different VCs, blue jeans and zooms and hangouts, and it's crazy. I think what's happened is, and I do think this is going to be something that's now permanent because the next generation coming through will really buy this idea. I think this whole work life balance thing that we've been talking for twenty years was nonsense. Yeah, it was never work life balance. We've it was just go just home occasionally yeah. and just work really hard when you're home. Exactly. What's happened is, I think we've learned something profound in the last couple of months not only can we effectively work from home but also we shouldn't be working as much yeah i doubt in in the history of man have we ever ridiculously worked the stupid number of hours that we've been working over the last 20 years it's gone mad Mm. everywhere i think what's happened is the pause button has had a profound effect in that we sat there and go you know what work-life balance is actually what it says it is not working as much is a good thing. It's better for our health. It's better for our family. It's better for work because we are not tired all the time. Interestingly, just before COVID, Norway introduced a scheme where you're only allowed to work six hours a day because they say that is what we've learned is the most effective amount yeah, of time you can do. And so what are people doing working 15 hours a day or 12 hours a day? It's nonsense. So here's a couple of profound things that's going to happen in work. First is we're going to work less, but we're going to be more effective. Within five years, nine to five, five days a week with weekends will have gone. You heard it here first, five, it's five gone. years, 2025, we're gone, Simon. To all of that nonsense about structured working, yeah. peak hours, commuter trains is gone. Yeah, There will still be people that play it, but the generation coming through will accelerate that because what's going to happen is we're going to go, you know, when we really need to get together, and being a creative business, we really need to yeah. get together because it's really hard to run workshops and scribble on walls when nobody's with you yeah uh, it's much more fun to bounce ideas on right so this whole idea about collaboration and creativity which is important in many of our organizations that's the one thing you miss when you do zooming yeah and so what's going to happen is you're going to have these innovation hubs will pop up all around the country and that's what we'll use so how just as we work has started to dominate the cbds cbd big offices will decline so imagine you've got 4,000 staff, you only need seats for 1,000. Yeah. So you go, whoa, yippee, the CBDs will become lived communities again. They won't be just offices mm-hmm. because we won't need them. Yeah. And I think what's going to happen is we'll go, wow, this is so cool because we'll take control back of our lives. It won't be just we work to live. It's kind of how it works at the mm-hmm. moment, right? I think we're going to be much more about we live to work. I think we'll have more holidays. I think we will be much better at managing our own time and less worried about somebody else having to manage it and ultimately 
we will be paid by output, not by time. When that happens, everything changes. I think that's really um, insightful. And besides us all moving to Norway quite quickly, as soon as we're allowed <laughs> to fly again, I think the health benefits to so many of us, for many of us, this is the longest we've been in our adult lives without getting on a plane. Every time I get on a plane week after week, I ask myself, what is this doing to my health? We're not built to travel at this speed. I think really being able to turn things off at, at home and in terms of work and, and actually just be and just the stillness that's brought into our lives I think is really valuable. There's part of me that just wants to preserve that for as long as yeah. possible. And I know keep the lockdown. Keep the lockdown, <laughs> exactly. So you've said five years for work to change. you said a few years um, for other trends to emerge. The big question that we're all grappling with is how long do you think this will go on for? There's two ways to answer that question. I think that if you take the kind of purist's view, then you would argue that the only time this will end, and what I mean end is this worrying about COVID, will be we either have a vaccine or we have a cure. Mm. Now, we've been pretty poor at finding vaccines for coronavirus, so it's quite likely we won't find one. But it is likely that we'll find medicine that once you get it means that it's not fatal. Mm. So I think it's more likely, I'm not a scientist, but it feels to me more likely that being able to treat it is quicker than being able to cure it or prevent it in the first place. Mm. But even so, I'm not sure that's the horizon I'm interested in. Because from a running the business perspective, I'm interested in knowing at what moment will we be able to revert or at least go back to some level of business as normal. Mm -hmm. And my view is that that's actually relatively soon. Mm -hmm. I think from an Australian perspective, we will be pretty normal business in July. There it is. And the reason I think that is because the country, of course, the government, the state polys, everybody wants business to come back. But I think it's the new normal. I think it's not business how we were doing it up until March the 13th. Yeah. I think there will be things like social distancing. We will be working still more from home. Mm. We will be coming together to collaborate and create and mm. invent more often than we have been because we haven't been at all. What happened, of course, is soon as March the 13th came along, as soon as the lockdown started to happen, spending stopped yeah. because they were worried about, like I said earlier, about what can we afford not to do. Yeah. And so they go, right, we'll stop everything. But by July, I think the momentum of business, the momentum of people getting out there, 50 people now allowed as of the 1st of June mm. into restaurants, the economy and the money swirling around the economy will begin to create momentum that by July we will be back going, okay, we have a new normal and we can make this work. Yeah, I think that would be fabulous. But and I'm an optimist. It is a new normal. We all have to be, and all the business owners listening will be optimists too, but you have to be when you've yeah. got your own business. I know you've got some thoughts around play as well and that great Dr. Seuss quote. Look, I think we, of everything we've missed, the thing that we really decided we most missed, and I'm not a shopper, so I haven't missed shopping. I know some people really haven't <laughs> But I think we've missed getting together with friends and going out to dinner in restaurants and having coffees with people and going to football games and going to music festivals and mostly travelling. Mm. We miss travelling. You know, Australia... In travel, we are the most attractive country in the world mm. for travel companies because we plan for longer, we go for longer, and we spend more because yeah. of the tyranny of distance, yeah. probably apart from the Kiwis, and they just go forever yeah. and they come here. So in play, I think uh, those are the things we miss most, and then that's how the economy will get going again. We will start travelling 
intrastate to start with. We will start going to cafes and restaurants. We will start doing things like going to as much as we can in trying to resume normality. And, you know, as I said earlier, when the travelling is allowed, when international travel is allowed, which could be a year away, it could be 18 months away, it'll depend on other countries, we will go mad. You know, like, I love that doctor. It says, you're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So get on your way. That'll be us. We'll all be going, yay. I have this image of a can of Coke being shaken up and, and the top being taken off and it all just squirting out everywhere because that's, that's how it's going to be feeling, a great release. And I guess if the travel and associated services can hold on and adapt and pivot to that opportunity, that is the massive opportunity. Simon, thank you very much. You have a craft. You've shared it with us today very generously. And I appreciate that. For everyone who's listening, I hope you got something from that, uh, from the great wisdom that Simon's given us. And if you are needing some help, please give your banker a call. We're here to help. Uh, We take it as it's our responsibility, but it's also a great privilege. So thank you for listening. We'll talk next time. Thanks, Simon. Thank you.